0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read again for us verses 2 to 7. Isaiah 9, 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you know that March 7th, 2022, is Fun Facts About Names Day? Here's how the founder of the day, Jerry Hill, describes it What's in a name? Fun Facts About Names Day encourages you to learn about the historical meanings and influences behind your name and the names of your friends and families. Uncover historical and religious influences, who you were named after, and see how name trends have changed over generations. I think that's a great idea. That's a fun day to have. And so I decided to get started a little bit earlier. And uh, a few weeks ago, I looked up some fun facts for myself on the Internet. And here's some of what I found. According to Guinness World Records, the longest personal name belongs to Herbert Wolf Schlegelstein Sr. By the way, that's the shortened version of a much longer name with 747 characters. That takes up an entire paragraph. The oldest recorded name outside of the Bible is Cusham dating back to somewhere around 3000 BC. And it wasn't the name of a king or some noble person that we would expect, but rather it was the name of an accountant. Go figure. For years, the last name in the San Francisco phone book was Zachary Zra, and that's nine Zs, which painter Bill Holland changed his name to so that his number would be easy to find and he could advertise as being the last number in the phone book. France has the record for the largest number of surnames, around a million of them. While Denmark, in Denmark, parents are limited to 7,000 state-approved first names that they can choose for their newborn children. Only 7,000. The largest gathering of people with the same first and last name took place on September twentieth, two 2005, when 164 Martha Stewart's came together on television and you can guess what program that was the name mentioned most often during a live televised program was Brett Favre spoken 203 times on October 5th 2009 on ESPN's sport nation and finally and my kids will like these ones Donald Duck's middle name is font Leroy Jake the jailbird is the name of the guy in jail you know on the monopoly board and the last name of the Ken doll, Barbie's boyfriend, is Carson. Some fun facts about names. And these I discovered uh, about a week ago when we began our Christmas, Christmas sermon series that we're continuing today, What's in a Name? For the four weeks of December, Pastor Joe, Pastor Joe and I are preaching on the four names that God the Father gave God the Son through the prophecy found in Isaiah 9, 2-7, we just read. And they are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, unlike the fun facts about names that I just mentioned for interest's sake, these four names are very serious and significant, and they have great implications for us. As God's people and really for the whole world. And we started to see that last week when we looked at the first name, Wonderful Counselor. And we will see this again now today as we look at the second name, Mighty God. Starting again with the definition of this name for Jesus Christ. Each name given to God's son in our text, you'll remember I talked about this last week, is a combination of two Hebrew words. And in this case, the first word is gibor, which means mighty, strong, brave. It signifies possessing great power. And it's used elsewhere by Isaiah to describe the warriors and heroes of Judah. As we see, for example, in chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2, the same word is used where it says, The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. Uh, Chapter 5, 22, it shows up again. Here we read, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. The word is also used to describe Joshua's mighty men of valor in Joshua 6.2. Young David in 1 Samuel 16.18, who there is called a man of valor, a man of war. It's used of the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17.51, who was called Philistine's champion. It's the same word, translated that. Uh, And King David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 7.8 who along with their king, in that verse, were said to be enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Okay, the coming son of God, Isaiah is telling us, will be a mighty man like that. We might say a man's man. Which honestly is not how many people see Jesus today, including many Christians who sometimes think of him quite differently. Yes, he is as meek as a lamb, That's true, and and that tends to be what's emphasized, but that's not all. He also is as mighty as a lion, or here as a bear, prophesied to come as a a coddled child and as a conquering king. We see this in verse 6. Both of these things are true. For us, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Psalm 2, another prophecy of his coming Davidic Messiah, King, uses even stronger language. There we read, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right? There's that that balance there of a child and a king. I wonder, is that how you think of Jesus? Do you have that biblically balanced view of him? He's a son, yes, and he's a sovereign whose name shall be called Mighty. But that's not all. The second Hebrew word in this given name is El, which means God. And it's a clear reference, of course, to the deity of this coming son. That we should note, in some instances, the same word is used in the name of mere men, like the prophet Ezekiel, which means God will be my strength. But in this case, it must mean more. After all, the exact same name is explicitly used for the Lord God himself in chapter 10, Verses 20 to 21. There we read, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Which makes sense, since the one true God, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who works all things according to his will, who, who miraculously freed Israel from Egypt and mightily gave them the promised land, that he is the very essence, the very epitome of mightiness, that he would, of course, be mighty God. For the Lord our God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God. Deuteronomy ten seventeen. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 24, 8. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah 32, 17, 18. That is what the Lord is like. He is mighty. And so is the Son, Jesus Christ, whose name should be called Mighty God. He possesses great power like mighty men and valiant warriors, but infinitely more because nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible to him who is God, who is divine, who is the Son. A pastor was once talking to a young boy after church and wanting to see what he was learning and how much he understood from Sunday school and from his sermons. He asked the boy, Young man, if you can tell me something that Jesus cannot do, I will give you a dollar. The boy replied matter-of-factly, If you can tell me something Jesus cannot do, I'll give you a million. He certainly had learned his lessons about Jesus. He knew the truth that Jesus is mighty God. Something that, of course, Jesus proved in his life and ministry, which takes us Secondly, too, the demonstration of this name by Jesus Christ. Looking into the future, the the prophet Isaiah here revealed that a child, a son, would come to put an end to the moral, political, and spiritual darkness described in chapter 8. And he'd do that by establishing a kingdom of justice, righteousness, peace, and light that would endure forever. Well, 700 years later, those prophecies began to be fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus. When he demonstrated in countless ways that he is the Messiah, the promised one, he is this mighty God. Surveying the four gospel accounts of Jesus, we see this divine power on display all over the place. First, just in his miraculous, mighty birth, as recorded in Luke 2, that was marked by the praise and the pronouncement of angels, a welcome into this world that is fit for the creator of this world. I love what Adrian Rogers once said about this. He said, This little baby that was upon the straw is the mighty God of Genesis 1. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and learned to walk is the one from whose fingertips sun sprang and oceans dripped. He is the mighty God. This little boy playing with the shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree and every hill and every mountain. He is the mighty God. Amazing to think about, especially at Christmas as we're celebrating his birth. But there's so much more. As as soon as Jesus' ministry began on earth, his divine power was openly on display through countless mighty miracles. For example, he powerfully cast out demons, healed Simon's mother-in-law, and many more in Luke 4. He then miraculously filled a boat with fish, cleansed a leper, and healed a paralytic in Luke chapter 5. He then healed a man with a withered hand and healed all the other who were sick with their diseases in Luke 6. And he healed the centurion's son at a distance with just a word and raised a widow's son in Luke 7. No wonder Luke writes in Luke 5, 17, that the power of the Lord was with him. But there's more. In Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured before his disciples in his glory. So he shone like the sun. He then healed a boy who was tormented by a demon and finally provided the temple tax for his disciples by telling them to go find it in the first fish they would catch in its mouth, which they did. Amazing. Amazing. He also calmed a storm, cast out a demon, healed a woman, and raised a girl in Mark 4 and 5, displaying his divine authority and power over the natural, spiritual, and physical realms. And we see in John's gospel how he supernaturally turned water into wine in chapter 2. He healed an official's dying son, again with just a word, in chapter 4. He healed an invalid of 38 years in chapter 5. He fed two thousand or 20,000 plus people with only 5 loaves and 2 fish and then walked on water before his disciples in chapter 6. He healed a man who was born blind in chapter 9 and finally he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. These seven signs of Jesus' divinity which frame the gospel of John also fulfilling his promised great name. He is clearly mighty God. But by far the greatest demonstration of Jesus' name was his own resurrection which is not only accomplished by the great power of God the Father, as we're told in Romans 6.14, and God the Spirit, as we're told in Romans 1.4, but also of God the Son himself, who told the religious leaders in John 10.18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Imagine that. Having the power and authority to not only determine your death, but to raise yourself back to life. As easy as laying down for the night and waking up, rising up in the morning. As easy as getting into bed to go to sleep and getting out of bed for the day ahead. Jesus said, I can do that with my own death and resurrection. It's remarkable. Who else could make such a claim and then fulfill it but mighty God whom Jesus proved to be over and over and over again at his first coming to earth. But how much greater will be his demonstration of power at his second coming? When he comes again and he says in Matthew 24:30 the world will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is more precisely what the prophet Isaiah is pointing towards in Isaiah 9:2 to 7 when the Son of God and Savior King comes to establish God's kingdom on earth forever, breaking the rod of the oppressor and bringing God's people into their eternal rest, disposing those who rebel against him and reject him while delivering those who've received him by faith. They will, we read here, rejoice before him and be glad because the government shall be upon his shoulder and of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. What a day that will be. As the Apostle John describes further in Revelation 11, 15 to 18, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Friends, that is how human history is ultimately going to come to an end with the second coming of Jesus Christ, who will put this world to rights. Like the author of a book who has the authority and the ability to decide how the book's going to begin and how it's going to end. So the divine creator of the universe has the authority and the ability to decide how all of human history, how the universe is going to begin and end. And he's decided that it will end with the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, whose name shall be called Mighty God. And oh, how that changes the lives of those who believe in him and belong to him, who set their hope in the Son of God and Savior King, who set our hope in his coming reign. Which takes us finally to the difference that this name should make in our lives through Jesus Christ today. Serving such a mighty God, of course, has many implications. But with the context of Isaiah in mind, I think that there are two main applications that Isaiah had here for his original readers, and for that matter, all of God's people who would follow. And the first is this. We can do whatever the Lord calls us to do. Throughout his inspired book, the prophet Isaiah reminded the people of Judah That the Lord God had gave them many commands to follow and a commission to fulfill. To be a holy nation set apart for the Lord's service. But as we've seen in chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 8, they failed miserably. And so God's discipline was coming upon them. But it wouldn't always be this way. No, as we've already seen, God was going to one day send his son to earth. Mighty God. Who would be the salvation and strength of his people, Isaiah 11 to 12, and would pour out the Spirit upon his people so that they can do his will, as we see in Isaiah 44 and elsewhere. Well, that day has come. Jesus Christ has given the Holy Spirit to all believers, which means we now have the spiritual power, the spiritual ability to do whatever he calls us to do. Church, we don't just serve a a supportive Savior, we serve a strong Savior who can enable us to do his will. We don't just live for an obliging Lord, we live for the omnipotent Lord who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his great power at work within us. Ephesians 3.20, what a promise. Henry Frost, a friend of Pioneer Missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once recalled, When I first met Mr. Taylor in London in 1887, I expected to see a man with a black beard and a full round voice. Instead, I found him a little man with a blonde beard and a quiet and gentle voice. I immediately concluded that his power was not in his personality, but rather in his God. While Hudson Taylor himself, many times, confirmed that. And particularly on one occasion where he admonished the church back home. How often do we attempt work for God to the limit of our incompetency rather than the limit of God's omnipotence? What a good word. Let's be honest. How many of us have seen Christ's clear commands in Scripture or felt Christ's clear leading to a, a particular ministry, or to a particular person he wants us to serve, or a particular task he wants us to fulfill, or a particular vocation he has planned for us. And we have failed to follow because we reasoned that we're not capable for such a work, or, or such a work is impossible. How often has that been our experience? Well, church, It's true that we are not capable. We are limited. We, we in fact, can't do anything on our own. But the one who's called us and given us certain commands and a commission is more than able to empower us for the work that he has called us to do by his spirit because he is. Mighty God. I can't do that ministry. Yes, you can. Because the one who called you, Jesus Christ, is mighty God. I can't serve in that way. Yes, you can. Because the one who has called you to serve is Jesus Christ. Mighty God. I can't do evangelism. Yes, you can. Because the one who's called you is Jesus Christ. Mighty God. I can't be a cross-cultural missionary? Yes, you can. Because the one who called you is Jesus Christ, and he is mighty God. When told by a tribal chief that his war-loving people would never listen to a woman, Scottish missionary Mary Slessor responded confidently, "In measuring the woman's power, you have evidently forgotten to take into account" her mighty God. Because Jesus is mighty God, because that is his name, we can do whatever he calls us to do. But there's one final application to this, one more thing that I want to close with, and it's this. Because Jesus is mighty God, we can be certain that he will do whatever he says he will do. Which in the context of our text means we can have complete confidence that the Son of God and Savior King will one day establish his kingdom on earth of perfect peace, justice, righteousness, and light. On earth as it is in heaven. Just as we see here in Isaiah 9, 2-7 and elsewhere. Another promise in chapter 11, verses 1-9. to There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Yes. <laughs> The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water comes covers the sea. What again an incredible prophecy so much like the one in our text. And so important for us to remember today. We look around our world today and it often seems like the wicked are winning, persecutors are prospering, rebels are reveling and godlessness is growing. The exploitation of the weak and vulnerable and marginalized is increasing. All over the world, divisive rhetoric, anger, hatred, and violence is on the rise. God's creation groans loudly as it is mistreated and mismanaged by greedy men. And worst of all, God himself is ignored because there is so little fear of the Lord. The world is an absolute mess. And we all know that this is not how things are meant to be. But will things ever change? Will all the wrongs of this world ever be made right? Many voices say, no, that's just fantasy. But the prophet Isaiah says, yes. A child, the son of God, will do it. And we can be sure of it because he is mighty God. We can be confident in his, in this promise that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or as John says in Revelation nineteen six, painting this picture of that day, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Are you looking forward to that day? Do you have confidence in Christ's coming? Are you certain that he will come again as mighty God to establish his perfect kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace forever? What a difference it makes when you do. What a difference it makes when this promise, this truth is forefront in your minds and you have complete confidence in his coming. It means that you don't have to fear the kings and kingdoms of this world. And there's so much fear of those in power today. It means you don't have to panic when wickedness prevails. It means you don't have to live under a dark cloud of despair when powerful people, repressive rulers, immoral institutions, and corrupt corporations have their day. You don't have to. No, because we expect these things in a fallen world. After all, we see the very same wickedness in our own lives, don't we? The same sin that has the potential to do the same kind of wickedness. But we do not lose heart because we have a far greater expectation that the king is coming. Mighty God to pull down all that is against him and put back together all the broken pieces of our lives and all the broken pieces of our world's. That's what this son, this savior king, is going to do. One day. Let's thank him for it. Lord God, we are so thankful for the hope we have in your promise. The promise of your son, Jesus Christ, that began to be fulfilled in his first coming when he came to die for the world as a lamb takes away our sin, but also the promise that he is coming again as the Lion of Judah to establish his kingdom forever, to put down and put away all wickedness and to bring us, your redeemed people, into your eternal kingdom forever of perfect, enduring righteousness and justice and peace and light. Oh, we thank you for that promise. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be sure of it because Jesus, the coming King, is mighty God. May your spirit now help us as we meditate more on this truth this week and let it change the way we live. As we follow Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.